Greetings, everybody. I am delighted to tell you that uh, we are into the best bit of Daniel now, uh, but I'm so sad to tell you that this is where we're going to actually end our series on Daniel. Uh, we've gone through the first six chapters where uh, the narrative, although pretty extraordinary, is actually pretty readable. Um, from chapter seven onwards, things get a little bit crazy. But it's precisely the kind of crazy that kind of gets my juices flowing as a, stu as a student of the Bible. Um, but you're not in any danger, so I, because I'm not going to get too caught up in any of the big details, I want to focus on what we can learn from today's passage. And this is the spoiler alert. My message for you this afternoon is that we can have hope bit of a plosive there into the microphone. Let me do that again. We can have hope. So that last song that we sang, the last line that we sang, what was it? My hope is in you alone. We don't collude, by the way, when, when we're planning worship sets and planning sermons, so that was the Lord. Uh, so, yeah, there are three questions I hope to ask and hopefully address in this passage this afternoon. The first question is, why is this all so weird? And the second question is, what do all these weird things mean? And the third thing is, is what message are we to take from this passage? So for note takers, the points in brief are why, what, and so what? The first question involves a little bit of history, and that will be actually most of the time that I take, so they'll get progressively shorter, these points. Uh, but they're really, there are really important reasons that we need to look at for why the language of prophecy got weirder and weirder as time went, at, time went on. The second questions involve some uh, interpretations, and I'm only really going to present you with the headlines. Uh, Daniel's visions have, to put it mildly, created a little bit of speculation uh, over the years. Um, and even though I'm only going to skim the surface, I can pretty much guarantee that there is someone in this room that will say that I've said something wrong. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, go too deep into that. But basically, that's one of the exciting things about interpreting the Bible, or I find it exciting. But on the other hand, some people hold such a deep commitment to a single interpretation uh, that I need to give a health warning for this section of the Bible, the health warning is this. This, this text can, in some rare cases, result in a log getting stuck in your eye. Please seek treatment for the log in your eye before attempting to perform surgery on your neighbor's eye. <laughs> uh, and the third question is really the most important one, which is, what does this mean to us? So what? Having explored what all the text might actually mean, we ask the question, so what? So, with no further ado, I have invited Debs to come and uh, read this passage from Daniel. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm told she's worked out different sort of character voices for the beasts <laughs> that are going to be rising up from the... Uh, so, here we go. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to read this incredibly interesting passage of scripture. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel's vision of four beasts. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote, them, he wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea. 
with the strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. It was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard the voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was very different from any other of the beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. I watched as the thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like the purest wool. He sat in a fiery throne with wheels of fire blazing and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many stood, many millions stood to attend him. Then their court session, then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with a cloud of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and led him into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all nations of the world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, and it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Thanks, Debs. So, first of all, why is this literature so weird? Well, it's weird because it's apocalyptic. But what does apocalyptic mean? Well, apocalyptic means that it's weird. And, but I'm afraid that's not very helpful, is it? So we need to do a little bit of biblical history to try and work out what this type of literature is intending to communicate. Otherwise, it will just always be weird. The period of history that we've been exploring in Daniel was probably the most traumatic that the people of God had ever experienced. Worse than slavery in Egypt. Worse than 40 years in the wilderness. Worse than the division between the northern and southern kingdoms, worse even than the systematic slaughter of prophets. 
And that's because when the Babylonian Empire came along, they destroyed what little was left of God's promise, or so it appeared. They were down from 12 tribes to just two, Judah and Benjamin, with Judah being the biggest and so giving its name to the region. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem, where Solomon had built the temple, and when the Babylonians came along, they turned the temple into rubble, the very place where God's presence dwelled among them, stones lying on the ground. And then all the people that were carried into exile were the only ones who could have actually run a functional nation. But Eugene Peterson uh, writes a commentary on Jeremiah where he points out that that trauma did not have the final word. He says this, and this quote is going to come up on the screen. They settled down to find out what it meant to be God's people in the place they did not want to be in Babylon. And the result was that this became the most creative period in the entire sweep of Hebrew history. They did not lose their identity, they discovered it. They learned how to pray in deeper and more life-changing ways than ever. Among the prophets we uh, read in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Ezekiel has a vision where he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple just before it's destroyed. But he also had a vision of the future where uh, the presence of the Lord comes back to dwell in a greater and more glorious temple. And Ezekiel has another incredible vision of God's people having become like dead, dry bones lying in the valley. And his spirit comes and breathes new life into them. And all these prophets that spoke into the problem of exile declared that this would not be the end of God's people and that the best, in fact, was yet to come. And this puts hope into the hearts of the hopeless. And about 70 years into exile, just as Jeremiah had prophesied, the Persian Empire comes along, conquers Babylon, and the exiles are allowed to return home. And this is where we read stories like Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther and prophets like Malachi, Haggai, and Zechariah. And there are huge building and restoration works, including a brand new temple. But there's a problem. It's a bit of a letdown. And it's nothing like the vision that Ezekiel had had which was massive. But more importantly, it was not characterized by the presence of God. The visible presence of God, the Shekinah, had not returned. And also, although the exiles had been allowed to return home, they were still very much under the thumb of the Persian Empire. And this continued over successive regimes, from the Persians to the to the Greeks under Alexander and the Seleucids and the Hasmoneans and then finally the great Roman Empire. So apart from a very, very short-lived moment after a revolution where they gained a, a, a brief glimpse of independence, they were just successively under occupation and domination. And so the political reality of this time, which lasted several hundred years, created huge theological problems for the people of God because the, prom the prophets had promised a much more substantial and glorious end to exile. 
So what were they supposed to do with these prophecies when it seemed like hope had completely evaporated? They had no idea what God was up to. He'd made a covenant with Israel, and yes, they knew they had screwed up. That's why they went into exile. But even though they had now returned and had a new temple, things weren't right. They weren't in Babylon anymore, but it still seemed as though they were still in exile. And it's this that creates the fertile ground for a new shape for prophecy to take. We begin to see the beginning of this transformation quite clearly in Daniel and Zechariah and sections of Ezekiel. Those guys begin to see that a, that a very plain and literal reading of the old prophets seem incompatible with how history began to pan out. Daniel himself rereads Jeremiah and he seeks the Lord and he begins to realize that the numbers that Jeremiah talked about stop working. They don't add up. And so if God's promises are true and they have to be true, then they have to be true on some other level. And so the prophetic expectation begins to change its focus. The expectation is no longer of a kingdom here on earth, but an eternal kingdom in a new creation. The expectation is no longer of some earthly warrior king that would rise up from among them, but instead of this heavenly son of man that would come and rescue them. The expectation is no longer that of this battle and conflict between people of flesh and blood, but that there are now these spiritual powers and forces and dominions that are at war with each other as well, angels and demons. And the expectation is no longer exactly vindication for our suffering in this life, but the hope of resurrection beyond the grave. And that is a radical development of prophecy, which we can see still in the time of Jesus not was, was not universally accepted. The Sadducees, for example, are not going to do the joke. Has anyone, heard the, has anyone not heard the joke? They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were... There we go. They were sad, you see. You did the joke. So this shift in prophetic language and expectation just kind of creates a, sh a shift in paradigm in how the people of God see themselves. The old prophets saw and imagined a future that would develop from out of their present. It's a natural view. You know, time passes, events transpire, God brings about his plan in and through those circumstances. But the apocalyptic writers lost any faith in this sense of historical progress. They believed that if God's promises were to come about, they would need God himself to break into the present from eternity. And that's the type of literature that we're dealing with here. And that's why it's so weird, because these guys are peering behind the curtain. It's an extended vision of reality. 
but they don't do this just to be mysterious, but the purpose of doing this is to understand life here and now, is to contextualize what happens here and now. God reveals what is unseen so that we might better understand what we do see. We're supposed to understand that whatever things look like around us, God is at work. When we look at our lives and the lives of those around us locally, nationally, globally, it can be hard to see how God's plans are in action. But the prophets have seen and they've spoken. So that's why it's weird. Because they're peering into the heavenly heaven, the realms beyond which we cannot see in an everyday basis. But let's return to the passage and see what it actually says. In verses 2 to 3, it says, In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea. Strong winds blowing from every direction, and four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. So very, very quickly, quick kind of whiz around some apocalyptic symbolism here. Daniel describes each beast, the fourth of which is the worst. Now, the sea is a classic image of chaos, which uh, is a force that stands against God, but God just speaks and it is subdued. It's no match for God. And then four great winds blow from every direction. That basically means the whole of creation. That's the four cardinal points, the, the, north, the north, south, east, and west of the compass. And then these four great beasts represent human institutions, so earthly institutions that rise up and have power, but they use it unwisely, and they use it to destroy. So those weird images of beasts that look like leopards but actually don't sound like leopards because they've got wings. Um, these are just uh, vivid descriptions of human institutions. Sometimes they are specific human institutions, but sometimes the message for us to take away is actually that they could be any institution. This is, a, this is a, an earthly institution that ultimately is born out of the earth, not born out of heaven. But then Daniel's vision turns, and in verse 9 it says this, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. And millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And the court began its session, and the books were opened. So we see this courtroom being set up with the Lord God himself as judge. And we remember that Daniel's name means God is my judge. And that in the first six chapters, we see the outworking of what this means in his life to see God as judge and to always um, refuse to, to toe the line when the way of the world differs from the way of the Lord. But here we see that God is going to judge the entire world, the four points of the compass. And he's got everything written down. But then there's this other shift, and this is a big one. Verses 13 to 14 say, 
As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One, was led into his presence, and he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now we're talking. I was in a a little songwriting group once. This is entirely irrelevant, but you might enjoy it. Um, I was in a little songwriting group once, and we all shared these really moving worship songs. And then this one guy started singing a song. There's a group of eight people or something like that, and this guy sat down and he started singing this refrain. The Son of Man is coming. The Son of Man is coming. Repeat, 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 repeat until he hit the chorus, which was a banger. Look busy. Look busy. <laughs> anyway, he, he was kidding. He just had us on the hook. But anyway... This, uh, this, this section at the end where he is given authority, honor, sovereignty, it is his rule that is eternal. It is his kingdom that will never be destroyed. The him there is the son of man, and we know who the son of man is because he came and he told us so, and he showed what he was about by doing everything that we just heard about in the Easter message a couple of weeks ago. Spoiler alert. He rose from the dead. The imperishable, unassailable kingdom of God that is hoped for is in the hands of the Son of Man. But it's not going to come about like those other kingdoms that rise up from the earth. It's coming in the hands of this mysterious being, this one like a Son of Man, who will come with the clouds of heaven with all power and glory. So history as we know it with its cycles of empires comes to an end and the divine kingdom of God himself will be all. His kingdom will be irresistible, unshakable, unbreakable, universal and eternal. And so I come to my last question. So what? Are you seriously still asking that? Well, if you are, the message for us, I think, is this. We can have hope. Because that son of man is none other than Jesus Christ, who lived and died and defeated death, becoming the firstborn from the dead, in whose resurrection we now live and will forever live. Let me tell you something about hope. It is not some kind of wishful thinking. It is not denial of the reality that we experience in every day, every moment. It's the peace that comes from being assured of the good that is yet to come, 
Let me say that again. Hope, I believe, is peace that comes from the assurance of the good that is yet to come, that has been promised to us by he who is faithful and capable. Whatever it is that we see as we look around us, whatever is going on in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of everyone who lives around the world who is suffering in one way or another, whatever that looks like, we can have hope. And it's not wishful thinking, and neither is it denial or inaction to meet the needs of those who have need, to tell them, you'll be fine. It's about the eternal breaking through into the present. It's about the future kingdom breaking into this world where dominions believe themselves to be all and above all, but we know better. So as we move into ministry now, which I know you're all going to respond to in your droves because you know exactly what you're doing, I just want to read a section of Revelation. Because so much of what Daniel saw comes into clearer focus in Revelation after the ministry of Jesus on earth. Why don't we stand and I'll read this from, uh, from Revelation chapter 7. And as I read this, why don't you just, uh, I don't know, close your eyes, invite the Spirit to speak to you just through the words of Scripture as I read them. Maybe even imagine yourself like John being shown this incredible scene of worship and uh, this revelation that he receives of what God is doing and what God intends to do. So John says this, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne, and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before their throne with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped God. They sang, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? 
And I said to him, sir, you are the one who knows. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. And that is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Father, where we have lost hope, would you come Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter, the counselor, and the Holy Spirit is here with us this afternoon to comfort us, to counsel us. So take heart. 